Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Forbidden archaeology, forgotten history, divination, magic, cryptozoology, UFOs, nature, science, and spirit. All this and more right here on the Main Street Universe Radio Network. This is from the Northern Tradition Shaman website. The word shaman did not originate on this continent. It's slurred from the word Sazamin, from the language of the Tungus tribe who live in western Siberia. Their culture and language, Tungus, are related to the Sami people of Finland. The meaning is not perfectly documented. Some possible translations are pathfinder or lighter than air. Tonight we'll be discussing shamanism, European shamanism, urban shamanism, all different types. Right here on the Main Street Universe Radio Network with our guest, Mr. Raven Caldera. We'll be back in just a moment. Forgotten history, divination, magic, cryptozoology, UFOs, nature, science, and spirit. All this and more right here on the Main Street Universe Radio Network. Blog Alt Radio. Mother Hell.
You are listening to Main Street Universe, the show and network reminding you that the mysteries and possibilities of the universe are closer to Main Street than you may have ever imagined. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Main Street Universe Radio Network. My name is Daniel Michael, and we are awaiting Raven Caldero. I'm sure he'll be here in just a moment. And right before we get there, though, I think I see a number. And here we go. Welcome, Raven. How are you? I am doing well. How are you folks? Very, very well. Very and great to hear your voice. I, I've seen you before. I've seen you speaking before. I think I've seen you in videos and things like that. And of course, our co-host Janice has met you in person, I believe. And I'm going to hand you over to Janice briefly as I have to go take care of something. I shall be right back. And Janice, here you go. All right. That was fast. (laughs) So how are you doing, Raven? Well, let's see. I'm in New England, and it's uh, 10 below with wind chill. So (laughs) Yes, yes. It's 17 here, according to the card that I was just in. But still, bitterly cold, bitterly cold. It's definitely January. So, oh yes. So tonight we're going to be talking a little bit about shamanism, uh, traditional as well as urban and other different types, and uh, your practice and maybe a few of your books. I have your hand fasting book, and Daniel wants to say something. Hold on. All right, I'm back. I was actually uh, lighting a stick of incense here. <laughs> Sandalwood, which is our favorite, or my personal favorite, uh, as well as Dragon's Blood is. But I mentioned in the opener, I know you might not have heard that, but for those joining us, in the opener I mentioned, and it was from your site of Northern Tradition Shamanism, the idea yeah. that the word shaman did not originate here on this continent, and I wonder if you could maybe expand on that a little bit. Well, actually, a lot of linguistic studies have been done on the word. Most, it, it, it's, uh, it's, uh, it entered the English language from uh, the Tungus uh, group of languages, which are Siberian, actually, are Western Siberian. Uh, they think it, it actually, um, the, that they, the uh, folks in Siberia got it from India about a millennium before that. But it is Siberian, and it came into our language through a particular anthropologist named Mircea Eliada, who was okay. Romanian, and so that was that was closest to him. It's the word that he knew because he was he was from Romania, and he wrote some some books on shamanism in the 1940s and 50s, which are still classics today, and that's where we sort of got the idea of calling of having it become a generic word for um, for indigenous tribal spirit workers around the world. Oh, okay, I see, I see. So it's. Um, it had originated with this person in in uh I just lost Romanian. the case. Romania. Yeah, he, well he he took it from the from the Siberian tribes who were who were using that word and versions of that word and had been for many, many centuries. And um now it's it's so it's become so uh it, it, the assumption is that I think a lot of people on this continent actually have told me that they they, they thought it was Native American which is funny because right. you know, it's from Siberia, <laughs> other side of the world, guys. <laughs> right. So. Well, 
When I first went to my first um, shamanism class, it was a Native American shamanism class. Yeah, because this is this is North America, and yeah. so the Native yeah. Indigenous um, shamanisms are, and I say shamanisms because there's many of them, are all going to be Native American. Um, the, what I the tradition that I personally practice is Northern tradition shamanism, which is um, which is European. It's European mm-hmm. and and and, and uh, Western Eurasian, basically from from Siberia to Iceland. And this is a tradition that goes back to the the, uh, the pre-Indo-European reindeer people, from back to the Ice Age, when um, when uh, folks were were surviving at the edge of the Ice Age. And in fact, if you've ever watched the Discovery Channel program about Utsi the Ice Man, mm-hmm. there was a shaman, you know, 5,000 years ago who tattooed um, uh, put put tattoos on his acupuncture on his acupuncture points and mm-hmm. uh, gave him dried mushrooms to carry around. And the tradition that I work with um, is goes back to that, it, although not certainly not in writing and not not directly. It's very indirectly, but that is about the, that's the earliest roots that we can point to. So uh, okay, but shamanism shamanism in general um, is basically it comes out of an, what we would call an animistic worldview, which is the idea of seeing the world as a place where everything is alive and part of a big network of life, not just plants and animals, but stones, rivers, lakes, the earth, um, many, uh, some but not all man-made items. Um, things, things all have soul, they all have spirit, and the, the idea that one can, one can learn to work with them and, and that one needs to be in right relationship with everything in your environment. So that's the basic. Now, there isn't one shamanic tradition. There are, uh, there are hundreds, possibly thousands. I'm not quite sure of, of the ballpark number. But even among Native Americans, there are many different ones, and, and uh, the rules and taboos may even conflict between tradition and tradition. And then, of course, there are modern traditions, which yes. are which have their own set of rules. Yes, because I was um, when I was at Changing Times, Changing Worlds, where we actually met. At they were asking me, "Well, Janice, do you do any African shamanism?" And they're like, "No, I don't do African shamanism." But um, <clears throat> and I have heard of it before. Because uh, I had heard of it that it was the basis of um, the Vudan religion, which I also disagree with. But um, there's many different forms of shamanism. So my first question to you, and I kind of answered it myself, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, can anybody or any race uh, be involved in shamanism? I would say um, a qualified yes. Yes to one level or another. Yes okay. to one extent or another. What extent? Well, that depends. Um, certainly any race, and, if, and in fact, um, one could say that if you go back far enough in prehistory, that's where everybody started. That, that was the first right. religion. If you go back you know, to, to, to the era of, of uh, cave paintings and rock carvings, um, there, there's a point in the Paleolithic where, where suddenly shamans start appearing, and um, all over the area is inhabited by people. And before that, you have you know you have pictures of hunters and animals, and and uh, large goddesses. Mm-hmm. But there's this point when suddenly you start getting 
um, people who, for example, in the area that uh, in northern Eurasia, you can tell them because they've got fringes and they, they're carrying the, the circle with this X in it, which is a drum. Mm-hmm. And so this this point when shamans started happening, and it, they sort of they apparently sort of began to happen all over the world at this point, which may be about human evolution. I don't know, but um, I would say that anyone can have a shamanic worldview. And it would, I think it would be good for our world if people had, if everyone had more of a shamanic worldview, if we thought about our relationships with nature and, and the elements and, and, uh, and our things and stuff like that. Anyone can do that. Um, that is irrelevant to who, who, you, who you are and what you were born of. Um, many people, um, I think of any race, but, uh, but not everyone has knack. Many people can... Um, learn can learn to talk to or listen to or somehow feel or communicate with certain sorts of spirits. Um, this this will vary from person to person, and then you have a small number, a small percentage of people who have a really good knack in that way, and and uh, just naturally the, the broadband never shuts off. And of those, um, my tradition divides divides. Um, those practitioners into two groups, shamans and shamanic practitioners. And this is this is only the definition in my tradition. Other traditions define those differently. Um, in my tradition, a shaman is someone the spirits actually grab, and they pick up and they say, you, and often that, that uh, there's a there's a near-death experience involved, and uh, or a long protracted illness or a stint of insanity or something, and then they come back from that, and they're different, and they basically are, the spirits set them to, doing a service job for for people, for their people, forever. You, you don't get to back out of it. It's very non-consensual in a lot of ways. And a lot of anthropologists going around the world and talking to folks, have uh, talking to shamans over the past 150 years, really made note of how non-consensual it is, and it's out of dire necessity. And on the other hand, a shamanic practitioner is someone who has talent and desire and a calling and chooses their level of involvement with with uh, spirits and chooses their level, what kind of, what level of mediation that they wish to do, and what they are willing to take on, and whether they want to be a professional, or whether they want to just do this for themselves, their family, and their friends. So um, I would say the answer is yes, but it, but what kind of involvement that will vary widely depending on the person, their desires, and their inborn knacks. And I wanted to get to another point because you mentioned um, you taking it from you know what ethnicities then down to individuals, of course. And then I would mm-hmm. like to also, I guess, remind people because it is on your site. We mentioned the origins of the word shaman being uh, not from this continent, and then we mentioned, <clears throat> as I said, ethnicities, and then back to uh, the individual. But you yourself are not associated with some that that would say they have some shamanic uh, things about them, such as a satru or or heathen groups. So yours is a is a different shamanic tradition. Um, Yes, northern tradition shamanism is it's very small. Um, There are uh, obviously. Uh, because European descended people, um, we we had a thousand years of, uh, possibly more like in some cases more like fifteen hundred years of these traditions being lost and then being stamped out. There's um, it, it's taken. There's not a lot 
left, or there's not a lot of people left who are doing this. And while it's seeing a bit of a resurgence today, uh, most people, when they think of shamanism, they think of some kind of indigenous shamanism. On this continent, mostly Native Americans, but maybe some other people might know about Siberian shamanism or Korean or uh, Taiwanese or uh, African or something like that, shamans from all over the world in indigenous cultures. And, um, it, and the, the thing is that everyone has a shamanic heritage. It's just for some, some of us, it, you have to go back a lot further and look a lot harder. And you mentioned the, the rebuilding story, which some people associate with a shaman. And I think that's interesting. And part of it could even be meaning that you had to be rebuilt, you were torn apart and rebuilt in some way. And yeah, that, that's that's true. That's actually true, and that's a uh, the uh, the dismemberment, the the dismemberment vision is something that happens to classic shamans um, all over the world. And in fact, uh, when it happened to me many years ago, I, I had no idea what was going on. I was just a dumb white American, and I knew nothing. And this was this came out of nowhere. And there were there were ancestors and ghosts and gods and spirits and, and a near death experience and all kinds of stuff and I was like whoa what the heck and I was I went to anthropology books because that was the only place I knew to go and I right. I looked at this and and I said wait a minute this has been happening exactly like this including the dismemberment vision which happened while I bled to death in a hospital um, this has been happening to people like this all over the world for thousands of years. This has got to be something, something real. Um, and what I think, and what I, I know from my own experience and from talking to those of other people who have been through that particular thing, including the dismemberment vision, is um, the spirits really do come down and rebuild you because in order to be a shaman, you've got to be able to, um, you've got to be able to carry and channel a lot of really strong energy, a lot of, of heavy voltage, if you will because you have to be able to do a lot of work. And you can't do that without, um, you can't do that with, with your, your energy body, if you will, the, the energy channels in your body being normal. They have to be kind of jacked up. To use a modern metaphor, it's sort of like pulling out 110 electric and putting in 220. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I'm an electrician too, so I know, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> yeah, and, and there's basically, uh, having, having studied extensively around the world with this sort of stuff, there's two ways to do that. You can do that the Eastern religion way, like the yogis do, which means spending 20, 30, 40 years um, doing these disciplines over and over and over again and making that your life's work, and then eventually you can slowly stretch it to that point. You, you, get, you get slowly better at it. And, or you can do it the fast way, which is the, the, the uh, traditional shamanic way, which you can't do yourself. It has to be done. The spirits come and do it to you, and you risk death. There is definitely an attrition rate, and this is something that... Um, uh, the the uh, indigenous shamans that have that have this kind of thing um, ha- have told anthropologists and other researchers is that not everybody makes it. Some people die uh, because it is so dangerous. It's, it's the short route, but it's the dangerous route. And I almost right. died. <laughs> so hmm. so there, you know, it's more than a more actual. Okay, you mentioned channeling. And one thing I thought was interesting, and then I'll let Janice take the next couple questions here, was in the Viking tradition they had the the berserkers, if you've ever heard of them. 
And oh, yeah. I thought it was fascinating that they like to try to take on the qualities of, say, like a bear or a crazy wild animal and then go into battle as having, like, being totally possessed by those qualities. I wonder if you could maybe just comment a little bit on animal channeling and shamanism. Um, sure. Well, the, the berserkers, the word berserk actually means bear sock. It comes from bear sock, which means bear skin. So they yeah. would put on a bear skin and wear it into battle. And um, uh, basically a lot of, uh, the, of the work and techniques of shamanism involve altered states. And there's many different kinds of altered states and many different ways to get there. But you don't, um, uh, someone who is a shaman or a shamanic practitioner does not just go into an altered state for recreation. They don't do it for fun. They do it for a purpose, and they use it like a tool. And the idea is that altered states that would be devastating to someone if they just came on um, are controllable. So one thing that uh, the, the berserkers would do is they would control the altered state of high adrenaline, sort of insane rage, in, in the sense that when you've got all that super adrenaline going on, you don't, uh, you don't feel as much pain, you don't notice if you're hurt, you could just sort of plow through whatever it is, and, and, uh, and not, we've, you've heard of people lifting cars off people and stuff like that, yeah. Um, yeah. When, they're, when, when they're in an adrenaline, it gives you extra, extra muscle power, it does all kinds of stuff, people do things that they never thought they could do, so the, the berserker learned how to go into trance in a way to trigger that, and they could turn it on and off. And uh, and it was, I'm sure, it was a terrifying weapon in battle. Yeah. yeah. So you were talking about the altered states, um, yep. and I know that uh, one of the classes, uh, well, no, I did go to two-year classes. One of the classes that I went to was the... Uh, the Eightfold Path of Altered States. And yep. I know um, it's uh, a little bit long, but could you go and talk a little bit about uh, sure. what they are? Sure. Reader's Digest Condensed Version. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. In, in, yeah. In my tradition, we, we see, the, see the, the various kinds of, various ways to get into altered states as an eightfold, eight-spoked wheel. And nobody does all of them. Um, most people do one or two or three. The idea is you have so many because no one is right for everybody. And the first one is the path of breath, which is breathing and meditation and chanting and that kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. That's the easiest and slowest, slowest learning curve, really. It takes a long time, but uh, it's, it's safer. Um, the next one is the path of ritual, which is doing specific ritual things over and over and over again. Um, you call up an emotion and then you repeat it, and you just do that again and again. Um, the third is the path of rhythm, which we often think of when we uh, when we think of, of modern shamanism, drumming, dancing, um, using rhythm instruments or using the body in, in a rhythmic motion. Uh, and uh, if you want information on the shamanic uh, rhythm path, I, uh, the best book I can tell you about, I can suggest, is um, Drumming on the Edge of Magic by Mickey Hart, who is the former drummer for the Grateful Dead. Um, yeah, yes, I think we yes. have that book in the house. <laughs> yes, that is one of the best ones, but he's also he, he does a lot of ethnomusicology as well as being a great drummer. And um, so, yeah, that's a really great book on that subject. The uh, third one is The Ascetic's Path, 
which is a, a really long, slow one that a lot of uh, yogis do. It's very Eastern religion, and it um, includes things like uh, discipline, tearing down, sensory deprivation, pu- bodily purification, things like that, um, which can be anything from um, saunas to putting string up your nose, just all kinds of, of stuff with that, um, silence, anything that's, that's very, that, that's a very, it's a favorite one of, of very monastic um, type groups. The next one is the path of the flesh, which is sex magic, which is the altered state people get into when um, when they are heavily into the sex act, and the idea is to control and sustain that and use it. Um, the the one after that, the next see that's that's five. Number six is the path of sacred plants, and uh, this is this is one people people often think of shamans. Well, they take they take uh, they take um, uh, hallucinogens, right? Well, actually, most don't. Um, only a small number do, and only if you're called to that particular path and working with those plant spirits, because that one's a really steep learning curve, and if you don't have a good relationship with those spirits, it can kill you or severely harm you. So that's a, that one you, you don't learn on your own, and you are really, really careful with if you're supposed to do it, and you have to make sure that you're supposed to do it, and many people who think they are, they're not. And then um, number seven is the ordeal path, which is pain and discipline. If you think of like the uh, the Lakota Sundance, pain and pain and endurance, Lakota Sundance, or the Hindu Kavadi ceremony, or even some of the Catholic flagellatory orders, or uh, things like that, it's using the body's own chemicals in access of very controlled pain and endurance um, to put one into an altered state. And then the final one is um, that of spirit possession, which is actually becoming. Uh, the Afro-Caribbeans have the, have the word horse for it, but becoming a carrier is for for the for gods or spirits willingly, not like a not like an exorcist type possession, but a inviting them in and and letting them uh, work through you. And so these are all all different different methods and modes, and um, you, you find the one or two or three that work for you, and you you do those. Yes. Yes, I know a lot about being ridden, actually. So, <laughs> but it's a good You're ride. Right. <laughs> Just hang on; it's a good ride. So, <laughs> so um, very humbling experience, I would say. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> and uh, speaking of being ridden, uh, I have a bunch of questions here, but I'm going to be jumping around a little bit. Um, how does one get seized up by spirits? And um, if that's Oh, go ahead. They they pick you. You don't pick them. Okay. Uh, yeah, you can you can uh, uh, you can sometimes uh, see people in my worldview. Spirits are people in the sense they're capital P people, but they're people. They are actual entities. They are not metaphors. They are not archetypes. They are actual entities. They have their own agenda. Um, mm-hmm. They often uh, some of them are sort of on the same level with us in terms of what they know and what they they can do. And some of them are much larger than us, and they see farther and know more. And um, and may or may not want to help us. Um, I, I, the ones I've dealt with either have been indifferent or they have have wanted to help me in some way. But they, of course, they want something back. They want my attention, my time, my putting work and effort into the world. So if you're, you can approach spirits. You can approach many many different kinds of spirits. There are spirits of earth and air and fire and water, of land and place, of rivers and streams, of stones, of animals and plants. There are gods of many pantheons. I'm a polytheist as well as an animist. 
there's all sorts, and you can approach them, and you can make an offering. And if it would, if you wanted to, it would do to, for you to think about what kind of, if I was this kind of spirit, what kind of offering would would help me, would would be useful to me. And uh, and you can then you can and you can ask, and then you can sit quietly and see what comes. And generally, if I am approaching a spirit, I'll try three times to make an offering and sit quietly and see if they are willing. If I get some kind of feeling from them, at least. Um, and if after three uh, tries it doesn't work, then they're just not interested in me, and I move on. Yes, getting, I follow the same philosophy, actually. But getting caught up in uh, non-consensually, that you don't do that. You don't try for that. That happens or it doesn't. And usually that'll, um, that gen- t- generally tends to happen like before you're 30 years old. That happens mm-hmm. earlier mm-hmm. in life, somewhere between puberty and 30. Um Actually, usually the, the majority between puberty and, and, and 21, that sort of thing. So if you're, if you're already like so significantly older than that and it hasn't happened, it's not going to happen, and that's okay because people say, oh, I want to be a shaman, but being a shaman is really hard. Yes, yes, yes. And there's no pop quiz with it either. Oh, no, you, you could die. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and then you you get to be taught, and maybe you're lucky enough to have human teachers, and maybe you're not, and the spirits try to teach you, and um, and and that is both amazing and infuriating to to have to learn from from uh, uh, learn through through uh, the tiny the tiny tin can and a string that to, that you're using to hear them with. <laughs> yeah, well put. And we are um, we're going to take a brief break here, Raven. Just a half-hour break. We've already been talking for a half-hour, so it's going very nice. And we're really glad to have you here, Raven, by the way, on Main Street Universe. We've had a lot of great uh, guests here in our four years of being on the air. And we're going to come right back just after a brief song break, Raven, and then we'll have a few more questions for you, including the origin of the drum or your favorite drum that you might use, as well as some other questions. So we will be right back, folks. With our guest, Raven Caldera, discussing Northern tradition shamanism and other aspects of other shamanism as well. And we'll be back in just a minute or so. We're just taking a brief half-point break. Be right back. Forbidden archaeology, forgotten history, divination, magic, cryptozoology, UFOs, nature, science, and spirit. All this and more right here on the Main Street Universe Radio Network.
are listening to Main Street Universe, the show and network reminding you that the mysteries and possibilities of the universe are closer to Main Street than you may have ever imagined. All right, everyone, and welcome back. And a portion of that plug is from a, a piece of a song from my band Dragon's Head, which is actually here rehearsing this evening, and I'll be joining them after the show. We have our fiddle player here, our violin player, as well as our bass player. I think I hear him upstairs, and our engineer. And I want to welcome everybody back. We're talking to Raven Caldero. We're talking about shamanism. And one aspect I'd like to discuss, Raven, because when people think shaman, I guess one of the very first things they think of is drums, right? And maybe after all the other stuff we discussed. And so I want you to maybe mention the nature of your drum. I've actually got a couple of them. Um, Drums are uh, in nearly every shamanic tradition. I think a few of them, a few of them tend more towards rattles, but most of them have drums, and uh, and the drums go all the way back to to uh, Paleolithic times. The very first drums were African slit drums, which is basically a big old hollow log with with uh, slits of different different lengths cut through, cut through the wall of it. And we have one in the backyard that we made for fun, and you beat on it with a stick, and it, it makes interesting noise. And eventually. People learned how to take animal skin and stretch it over a frame. And if you think about it, that's what we are. We are skin stretched over a frame. And um, yeah. then you <laughs> and then you call uh, you call the spirit into the drum, and that drum will do a particular thing for you. Um, most of the drums that we that we tend to see are uh, of the old drums that we tend to see are journeying drums in the sense that. Uh, they are are uh, used to travel between the worlds, and the shamans in some cultures referred to their drum as like their horse or their reindeer or something like that. That that their steed that carried them, and they would beat it in kind of a burum burum sort of thing. Um, and drums. Um, so uh, so my uh, my um, I have actually three spirit drums, and my. One that I use for journeying, uh, her name is Palu. She is um, made of birch and reindeer hide, and she was made by some fo- for me by some folks in Finland who do those drums the old-fashioned way. The, the, to, instead of being glued, she's she's pegged, and uh, she has all she has the nine worlds of my cosmology drawn on the top, and runes and other other interesting things drawn on, on her top. And she is she is alive. She came to me without a spirit in, and I called one in. And the I, I didn't know what sort of spirit was going to come in, but she came. And she's she's very sweet, but she's very vain. And her name means story in Old Anglo-Saxon. And she has um, sort of jingly ornaments all around her edge because in my tradition the the, 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 she, the kind of drum she is is called a runabom. And they we don't have rattles. Instead, we have these uh, jingly, clacky things, different ornaments that you hang around the edge of the drum. And so the drum itself functions as a rattle. Um, and she's very vain, and she likes people to admire her ornaments, and periodically she'll throw one or two of them off and, as a way of saying to me, I want new ones. And then I have a great, big, huge drum that's that's about four feet across that is my healing drum. And it has a... 
uh, a map of the human body if the human body were a landscape. We're looking down at it from, from the top as some kind of a symbolic landscape. And that one I actually use to hold over clients. And, uh, and I'll, I'll uh, chant and push energy through my voice and the drum into their bodies, using the drum as kind of a focus, like a lens, into a particular parts of their bodies. And that's used for healing. And I've got a third drum that's uh, a doombeck with shells on it. That is you know, my water drum. That's for calling. That's for working with water spirits. Um, it wasn't unusual for shamans to have half a dozen drums. Some only had one, but some had had collections of them for different purposes. All right. <laughs> Sounds good. I love. I personally, I love the sound of the drum. This is very oh, yeah. much like kind of a heartbeat. Are you there? Yes, the the rhythm. Oh, okay. Yeah, the the rhythm, rhythm method, the rhythm path isn't for everybody, but I think most people who do shamanic work do find it useful. They they do find having that that beat, and you can you can do all kinds of interesting things with with the, with drum beats and with rhythm. Yeah, well, I've I've heard. I I think one time I saw a video of you on YouTube or somewhere, and you were doing a drum divination. Maybe you can describe that one. I think you had a thing on top of the drum, and you were tapping it, and then seeing uh, where it lands or something like that. Maybe you could describe that a little bit. Um, sure. That, that's that's another thing that's, that uh, is traditional for the runabom. And uh, my 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 drum Talu, like I said, she's got things painted on her top. She's got she's crowded with symbols. She has all kinds of little symbols. And one of the ways that I do divination is that I will take someone's personal item, like um, a car key or a ring or uh, um, some sort of small thing, like a pendant that they would wear all the time or carry around with them that would have a lot of their energy on it. And I just put it on the drum, hold the drum up in the air, sort of flat, and tap it underneath a specific number of times, and then see what symbol that little item landed on. Okay. So that's part of your... Go ahead, I'm sorry. So that's um, part of one of the things that you do as part of your shamanistic practice? Yeah, um, in terms of divination, um, I had to learn, well, I was asked to learn 27 forms of divination. It could be any 27, although runes wow. and wow. the drum yes. were, were required. There were half a dozen that were absolutely required. I, I couldn't pass up, but the rest of them I, I could choose. So, yes, I, I, uh, I learned 27 forms. And so that's because when, when clients come to me, Sometimes some forms of divination are more appropriate for their answers than others, or some forms um, just just speak to me about this client and this problem. So my first my first div- divining, if you will, when anyone comes to me, is to sort of hold my hand over a box of, of whatever I, whatever supplies I brought in that day and see which divination method speaks up and says me. Mm, I like that. Mm-hmm. Sort of like waving your hands over the box. To yeah. see what comes out. You know, is it going to be uh, is it going to be runes? Is it going to be tarot? Is it going to be the drum? Is it going to be um, uh, reindeer knuckle bones? <laughs> Just different things like this. All right. So I have another question. What is the real difference between core versus urban shamanism? Hmm. Uh. Well, there's books out there, you know, urban magic and urban voodoo and 
urban hoodoo. It's always something urban and another thing. So what's the difference? Okay, well, first of all, neither I, – I, with core shamanism, that's a, that's a term that was invented by Michael Harner, who okay. is the guy who, who, uh, who founded the Foundation for Shamanic Studies, which was the first real big modern shaman, shamanism, modern shamanic tradition. Um, he and I disagree on that, that terminology, which is okay. okay. He, he, he has his terms. Um, he felt, he basically went and learned the techniques, the uh, altered state techniques, some of the energy moving techniques, and mm-hmm. he felt that because so many of these, not all, but there was a lot of commonality in these techniques across cultures, um, he felt that this was the core of shamanism. Okay. And so he basically took those out of their cultural context, and so that, and, and although some of them still kind of, there's still many of them are still kind of South American because that's where he learned his stuff. But he took them out of their context and and basically is teaching a tradition where he says that you can take these techniques and you can apply them into any context. Now, if one assuming one could do that, and and I mean these these are these are tools. These are all just tools in a big old toolbox that goes back thousands of years. Um, yes, you can do that in an urban way. Um, okay. The core shamanism is strictly just just the idea of taking the traditional techniques and ripping them out of their cultural context and applying them to any other cultural context, including modern urban America. Whereas um, urban shamanism is specifically urban shamanism is, uh, usually partakes of that, but um, a lot of urban shamans, uh, for them, it's it's less about the techniques and more about the city spirits, just as there are right. spirits of, of place that are woods and, and desert and everything like that, there are also spirits of the city. Um, the, often the, the larger land spirits have been killed off and replaced by the city spirit, who is often very powerful in, in big cities. Mm-hmm. And there are spirits of, of uh, old buildings and um, sometimes city ancestors and things like that. So this is someone who's practicing... Um, so urban shamanism is usually someone who's practicing some kind of some kind of spirit-based shamanism, although they might it might not be spirit-based, but that is using urban spirits rather than than um, uh, rather than the traditional nature spirits. And right. my my difference with Michael Harner on the the term core shamanism is that I don't believe those techniques are the core. I think the spirits are the core, and those mm-hmm. techniques are merely the shell. Um, but one of the things that uh, that a, a lot of the of course shamanism teaches is that you don't have to believe in the spirits to do this, which is true if that's if you're only just using energy moving techniques and trance techniques, you can still do a lot of things without any spirits and without believing in them. Um, yeah. But there are many 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 more things that you can only do if you are working with spirits. Uh, so a Urban shaman might be doing it. it might be doing core shamanism in an urban area, or they might be doing spirit-based shamanism in an urban area. And this does drum up what I might call, of course, and we we left out the term classical shamanism too. But you already, I think, you touched on it, explaining some of it. Yeah. But also touches on a sort of classical, um, metaphysical, or pagan argument about whether or not the powers you're working with have names, you know, faces, anthropomorphic versus, um, okay, it's just an, an energy form, thought form, servitor form. 
And then even, but then again, even some chaos magicians like our friend Andreas Bidemus that joined us on the show, even he who takes more of a chaos magic approach, when we ask him, so are these beings real with real names or are they just energy forms? His answer was yes to both and treat it like both. <laughs> so I thought that was a pretty good answer. <laughs> I mean, I I kind of feel like it's it's disrespectful to try to force anyone to believe in any deity that's not talking to them personally. Of course, if you stumble across something and and inadvertently piss it off and then it makes your life miserable, it doesn't matter whether you believe it or not, your life's still going to be miserable. Right, um, exactly. So the energy's still there, there either that. way. Um, to me, it works better, just in general, maybe not for every operation, but I do find for me it works better to work with you know, a being with a name and say thank you and, and, and leave an offering. To me, that approach, maybe it's just because I'm old-fashioned. I don't know. You know what I mean? But but, 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 but it, my point is, seeing it in an anthropomorphic way, it just seems to work better for me. I've actually tried the other way before and go, okay, let me take more of the spirit science approach. And for some activities, you know, just like certain trances meditation is fine, but when I'm trying to do something specific, let's say, or really trying to do something else beyond just just getting into like a a state or something like that, uh, then I think um, it just it just seems so much better to have the 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 personal relationship the 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 back and forth or it feels like a back and forth, and then the respect the mutual respect and then thankfulness and then all those sort of things. I, I just to me that just feels like, but that's for me. For someone else, maybe maybe different. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm well aware because I, I do talk to a lot. I, I've been interviewed by multiple um, multiple academics, um, many of whom uh, do not believe in, in the reality of, of gods and spirits, and that's okay. You know, it's not their thing. Um, but I, I'm aware that when I start talking about this, um, that that they may think I'm a little crazy because I'm I'm talking about this matter of factly. Is of, of course these are all real. Of course these are entities with which right. one could right. theoretically have conversation and while we have we have human filters in our meat brains and so part of how we see them is our filter, they're still there and they have will and agenda and and uh, feeling yeah. and thought. Um, and uh, but I also realize, you know, sooner or later we come down to this this hard sort of rock and hard place where you know you gotta you gotta either believe in the six foot tall rabbit in the middle of the living room or you don't, that kind of thing. Um, and so I don't push people on that. If they are not in a place where they can believe in anything like this, okay. But when they ask me, can I do shamanic work and not believe in any spirits? I say no, no, you can't really. And in fact, many spirits would be offended by the idea. I mean, if you think about it, if somebody came up to you, knocked on your your door and said, so I want you to give me stuff, and I'm not even sure I believe you exist, but I want you to give me stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. We're going to work together. It'll be okay. Right. And, uh, See how far that takes you. And are you real? <laughs> <laughs> this makes me think of, there was um, the Australian artist woman. Oh, gosh, I don't have the computer in front of me, folks. Uh, Ellen or, uh, what's her name, Norton or something like that, sort of a feminist witch artist in Australia. And she used to go into trance-like states very deeply. One time even did, like, that Buddhist five-day one. And her conclusion from, like, a lifetime of doing this, 
and she became fairly well known in her area more more there than maybe in the states. And back then, you know, she was very feminist, very you know, which was very popular at the time. And but anyway, to get to the point, she explained the experiences in the astral plane in a way I thought was interesting, or at least in the documentary about her that I, that I watched a while back. It was when she explained it in the way of saying that you could project and bring the form you wanted. And so people were thinking she was going in that in that direction that it was just an energy thought form of your own. She was like, but that doesn't mean that it's not actually a higher force or energy that exists on a plane that, you know, maybe is beyond us just expressing itself because you exp- because you projected it. So it could be sort of a bit of both, which is I think was a little bit what Andrea was saying. Yeah. It's a bit of both. You're projecting it, and then it's coming to you, perhaps. I know we're kind of drifting here a little bit, but, but I just thought that was a, an interesting way to, to put it, that it's kind of both. And I think that's kind of how I see it. Like, if I'm calling it and projecting it, it's not just because I created it. It might be because either it called me or I'm calling it or we're calling each other. And and so there's this mutual back and forth, so a mutual respect, in my opinion, for my own practice, would, would, would be in order. Now, um, I'd like to shift gears here a little bit and maybe talk about another aspect of this, working with herbs. And there is, and I noticed with the Northern tradition, you mentioned the nine sacred herbs, and I was wondering if maybe you could expand on that a little bit. Sure. Um, just just uh, to throw out there, I did put a book out called The Northern Shamanic Herbal, and it does have a, um, a segment on a section on the nine sacred herbs. And when I was in my early 20s, I went to a pagan gathering, and there was a Hopi man there, and he sang what he said was a thousand-year-old power song of his people. And I said, oh, that's so cool. I wish I had a thousand-year-old power song of my people. And I went about my business thinking that that was impossible. And then I stumbled across um, the Song of the Nine Sacred Herbs, which is from the Laknunga, which is a, an early Anglo-Saxon herbal. Laknunga means leech book or a healer book. Leech used to mean healer before it uh, was applied to the little black sucking things from the swamp. Um mm-hmm. And uh, the uh, the nine sacred herbs are um, mugwort, plantain, crab apple, fennel. Um, uh, well, they say chervil, but it was but it was before we had what we think of as normal chervil. So it's really sweet Sicily, what we call sweet Sicily, and um, and nettles. And uh, I'm I'm spacing them now. And, and one that people don't know, aren't sure what it is, and I'm pretty sure it's viper's bug loss. And basically, you sing this song. The first half of the song is all like hymns to these herbs, all mm-hmm. in Old Anglo-Saxon. And the second half is what they're good for, and the story of how Odin put them all on, and put these nine plants in every world, that every all the nine worlds, in order to uh, that they would all be there for the good of of of, uh, of the universe, of anyone who who needed them. And they are in many ways very healing herbs. The first one is mugwort, which is the uh, Western European equivalent to the, the Native American white sage. Yeah. Um, yes, and basically the, the the smudging herb, we we call it we call it uh, reekening, which is uh, a word for the same thing. And yes, it's cognate to the word reek, as in make a smell. Um, the the Western European were, was uh, mugwort, and the Eastern European was juniper. People used both of those across Europe, and and they both like um, white sage. They really clear space and purify it and uh, drive off all kinds of negative energy. Um, 
and mugwort is an artemisia, and the artemisias have been used all over the world for this purpose. It's used in China for moxa, which is uh, burning the herb on... Burning uh, on, on the stomach, stomach right? On, on various acupuncture points around the body or on joints or things like that as, as a, a healing method, which uh, my partner is a massage therapist and, and uh, shiatsu practitioner and does Asian body work, and so he does moxa, and it's wonderful. Um, so these are, these are all powerful plants, and and they're also symbolic of the nine worlds. And I uh, um, I have on on my on my website northernshamanism.org. There's a a uh, MP3 of me singing the song. Um, the the words are original, although there was one line that I took out. There was a line sort of stuck in the middle of it that had nothing to do with a line before or after it. Um, and didn't scan and didn't didn't have the same rhythm and was clearly not meant to be there. It was about Jesus and it was stuck in the rest of the poem was all about Odin. But that one was stuck in and I think it was stuck in because the Lakmunga was published at a time after the conversion where it wasn't okay to have the old pagan stuff. And so even writing this down, they had to sort of cram a line in about Christ in order to, you know, not be dragged off and, and uh, called a heretic and, and you know, hanged. Um, so I took that line out, and the song, the, the melody is is uh, modern because it's. I asked the spirits, and they said, the old melody wouldn't make any sense to you. Use a melody that people will understand and be able to work with. But the language is the old, the original old, old Anglo-Saxon, and it has to be sung in that, that language. Uh, and it is an incredibly powerful song for healing, and it also charges any of those. And the very last verse of it um, calls the directions and cleanses the space. And I use that verse at the beginning and end of all my ritual stuff. I stand there with a stick of burning mugwort and sing that that verse of the of the of the, of the song. That's great because I'm very musical about doing ritual in general. And we're coming down, I'm just letting you know, to about our last five or six minutes here. And perhaps sure. the next time you come on, if you show up again, it would be nice. <laughs> and Please show up we, again. We, we might pick a specific topic, and since you kind of stumbled across it, maybe you stumbled across the topic, is maybe some interesting points about conversion from paganism to Christianity. Like I was using the example of the Vikings earlier or the Norse. Viking is actually an activity, it's a raid. But yeah. but but they were Norsemen. But but a lot of those the conversion was just like, well, gosh, this is this is the religion of the people that are trading and they seem to have the money. You know, so it was like, Yeah, 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 we're Christian, okay. Like it's funny how the conversions happened in different ways in different areas. Uh and so the king of Norway was like, Yeah, yeah, we'll convert yeah, sure, we can trade now. You know. It was it was, it was kind of half hearted uh, conversion. But, yeah, but we'll mention those we're, things we're later, but shy. maybe that'll be a topic for a future show, is is sure. different conversion aspects in Europe. Absolutely. But thank you very much Happy for joining us, uh, Mr. Raven Caldera. Sure. Thank you for having and, me. And if you'd like to plug anything, uh, one yes. or two of your websites, we, we're going to have some attached to the show page as well. If they're not already, they will be soon. We sometimes get more listeners in the archive than live, in fact, considerably more. It's like you, you visit back again in the archives and you see you see many more, you know, hundreds of listeners and stuff there. So um, if you want to maybe plug anything you're promoting now or a website, that would be great. 
Well, my shamanic website is northernshamanism.org, and I also have northernpaganism.org for those who are just interested in northern tradition paganism, which is uh, not the same as Asatru, but it's it's the same cosmology. And it has many shrines to all the Norse gods, online shrines where you can light virtual candles. And my shaman, my shamanic books, my shamanism books, um, are all on uh, are listed on uh, northernshamanism.org, and they're also on Amazon um, and on asphodelpress.com. And a few of them are, are are in other places. But if you I, if you Google me, it's fairly easy. Google Raven Caldera Shaman. It's pretty easy to find all that. Um, and I keep I keep uh, every few years turning out more books on the subject. So um, stay tuned for those people who are interested in this. Oh yeah. Right. Thank you so much, Raven. And we, yes, we thank you so much. We hope you come back to join us on Main Street Universe and I would be happy to. Oh yes. So everybody, we've been discussing shamanism with Raven Caldera. I am uh, Daniel Michael and my co host associate producer. Associate I'm sorry, producer. I'm sorry, I'm supposed to say associate producer. Associate producer is uh Denise Arway. Denise Arway, who's also host of the World Reggae, Reggae Party. Party. As I get myself in trouble right at the end of the show. Can you imagine that? Isn't that how it always happens? But, uh, again, thank you, Raven, and thank you, everybody out there, for listening. And you've been listening to Main Street Universe, the show and network reminding you that the mysteries and possibilities of the universe are closer to Main Street than you may have ever imagined. And I don't know about you. But I can imagine a lot. Thank you all for joining us, and have a great evening. Forbidden archaeology, forgotten history, divination, magic, cryptozoology, UFOs, nature, science, and spirit. All this and more right here on the Main Street Universe Radio Network.
Forbidden archaeology, forgotten history, divination, magic, cryptozoology, UFOs, nature, science, and spirit. All this and more right here on the Main Street Universe Radio Network.